back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today I'm joined by legendary Democratic strategist and newest member of The Lincoln Project team, Joe Trippi. Joe's been at the forefront of movement politics since the 80s and worked for Ted Kennedy, Gary Hart, and has been called the man who reinvented campaigning. He's worked on more campaigns than we can probably note. Obviously, I think his 2004 work with Howard Dean for president changed the way that we all campaign from that moment to this day, and also worked for Doug Jones on his 2017 special election. Joe's the host of That Trippy Show, available on Apple Podcasts and wherever you find them. And Joe, just yesterday you had an op-ed in USA Today joining the Lincoln Project here, the pirate ship, as we like to call it, as a senior advisor. So, Joe, welcome back to the show, and thanks so much for joining up in the fight. No, man, Reed, it's great to be back with you. It's great to be part of the Lincoln Project team. And I really think it's important. I said it in the piece that we've got to stop seeing this as Republicans versus Democrats, liberals versus conservatives. It really is all of us against an authoritarian movement led by Trump. That's one of the reasons I I wanted to join and try to get Democrats and Republicans, independents, everybody to come together, recognize the real threat out there and join together to stop it. And Lincoln Project is a really good place to fight. I want to talk a little bit more about your piece for a moment. And Joe, in this piece, your main theme is that politics right now and up to the 2022 election is not about policy. It's not about petty politics. It's not about individual histories or past partisan fights. It's about the future of democracy and ensuring that it survives. Even when I was a kid, right, and I think you and my dad, you're younger than my dad, but somewhat contemporaries in the 80s and 90s, there was work across the aisle. The vestiges of blue dog Democrats and Rockefeller Republicans were clearly visible through the windshield, but it still existed. And since that time, really, what we've seen is just that the parties have homogenized amongst their own belief systems and have calcified in what they're willing to accept as what their members can believe. And now, especially in the Republican Party, it has to be fealty to Donald Trump, this proto-authoritarian movement that you're talking about. And now, as we saw earlier this week, surprise, surprise, a lot of Republican members of Congress, a lot of House candidates, a lot of Senate candidates are getting on with the big lie that, you know, that's going to be what they're going to run through their primaries, and that's what they'll run into their generals. And so, Talk to us a little bit how you see it from someone who spent their life and their career in democratic politics. What it is that we can learn from your side of the aisle as we all sort of lock arms here and march forward? We've done battle for 40 years. Steve Schmidt, Stuart Stevens, we've been on opposite sides of all kinds of different fights. But, you know, going back to your dad and other people, there was a civility and a decency and the common thread that we were all fighting for the best democracy we could. We might disagree about policy, but we were all of us trying to make America a better place and the democracy stronger. And then, as you point out, it's become so polarized now, and it's galvanized this authoritarian movement. I mean, I think Joe Biden's lowering the temperature, trying to find common ground, all that's great, but that sense of normalcy doesn't really exist. And he's got to do that. And the people who are trying to govern right now have to try to come together, get something done. But I think that actually means that there have to be some other groups out there that do not let up on what happened on January 6th, that don't move away from bringing clear alarm to all Americans what the fight really is right now. And it's not 
us Democrats and Republicans going at it. This is an authoritarian movement that's trying to take power by any means. And that's why I think the big thing right now is, I think, groups like the Lincoln Project that aren't afraid, aren't playing, worried about the party politics. And hey, I respect that because I've been hit pretty hard by my party establishment, but I never left it knowing I wouldn't be able to go back like you guys did. But I think the thing that we can bring to the table, I think, I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to join was I think we want to use the technology and digital tools out there to build a pro-democracy coalition, to build a pro-democracy cross-party coalition. And as a team, you are all able to communicate, build great content, galvanize obviously millions of Americans to join with Lincoln Project and fight the fight in 2020. I thought, well, where could I help build that movement? Where would be a place where I could help do that? And I think the stuff I did pioneering the Dean campaign, it's a great combination to try to, to grow this regardless of party, everybody in their own way become part of the pro-democracy coalition, whether it's to join the Lincoln Project like I have or some other group out there that's part of that coalition. And there's several groups out there doing good work. That's what I think the combination brings to the table. So, Joe, as you were watching and participating in the campaign in 2020, we had a target. We had the biggest target, right? There's no bigger target than the president of the United States. We had a particular set of skills and tactics that drove right into his cerebral cortex, into that lizard brain that makes him react badly. That fight seems easy by comparison to what we're dealing with now. How can we apply those lessons from last year, but not fall victim to the idea that, you know, we A, fight the last war, or B, the fight we face now is the same as the one we fought a year ago? It almost didn't work last time, right? I mean, with everything we had, you know, the people out there fighting, you guys out there, basically turning your back on your careers and in fighting. We barely make, you know, what, 42,000, 44,000 votes that Joe Biden wins by in three states. It ain't over. Instead of like, what went wrong? Who did that? We got to double down in 2022. If you look at it, the authoritarian movement is growing in terms of how fearful those in elected office in the Republican Party have become because they're worried about risking their careers. Some of them, you know, I think are really afraid for their safety. But the point here is Joe Manchin and Joe Biden and people are in the Senate, they're negotiating with hostages. They're not even negotiating with the hostage takers, right? They're dealing with the hostages, but wherever they succeed, which they need to try to do to get something done to actually help people out there, that actually makes people relax and go, hey, it's getting normal again. And that lets up the pressure on this authoritarian movement because Donald Trump's still out there banging away on it. August is coming up. And of course, you know, he's playing to their conspiracy theories that he'll be back in office by then. It's a real problem. And in 2022, I still believe that in a lot of ways, 2022, particularly in the House of Representatives, is the major hurdle that we have to pass. I know Schmidt talks about 2024 and in the must-win presidential race, and I, I think that's right. But if Democrats lose the House to these authoritarian movement folks in the House, I think that is a real threat. And that's why no one can let up. We have to fight harder than we did in 2020. And the problem with that is a lot of people want to take a breath. 
after going through what we all went through together and not having Trump on the front burner every day. But the press covers this thing like it's the old two parties. You know, if the bipartisan infrastructure bill fails, somehow Biden failed to pull it off. Like there's anything he could do. That's crazy. And we have to keep calling that out. I mean, at the end of the day, has there ever been a situation in which Mitch McConnell let something like this this far down the road and then didn't play Lucy to the Charlie Brown, like pulling the football out from the Democrats? That's what I'm saying. It doesn't exist. That bipartisanship is a myth. I mean, it's not there. It may have been there. It's not there. And that's, I think the problem is a lot of the Democrats that'll be running in these marginal House seats, one of the things I learned in the Jones campaign in Alabama was there really are a lot of Republican women, younger Republicans, college-educated Republicans. They can't really stomach the Republican Party anymore and look over and want somebody that they think is trying to reach across party lines. From a political point of view, they have to be able to run that way and mean it, and I think many of them do. I'm sure Joe Manchin does and others. But at the same time, someone's got to hold the feet to the fire on the Trump Republicans. And that's why I think someone else has to call those people out. And I think it's got to be groups like the Lincoln Project, Midas Touch. I mean, different people out there and work hard at it and not let up. So, Joe, let me ask a self-indulgent question, if you would. I've been on the phone the last month or so with a lot of the folks we worked with last year. They've all to a person said, you know, glad to know that you're going to be in the fight next year. What would you say to your folks on the Democratic side of the aisle who still say, well, they got a lot of attention last year. Who knows how effective they really were? And let's be clear, they're still Republicans and eventually they're going to use their powers for evil against us again. How do we convince people that, like, we only got one thing on our mind and it is not beating Democrat 24 in a legislative seat or a governor's seat somewhere? Look, I think. Democratic committees spent millions, 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 a lot more millions than the Lincoln Pro I mean, combined, right? I mean, all these groups out there and the Democratic Senate Campaign Committee and the campaigns, they all spent all that money. And guess what? We barely pulled it off. That's how powerful this thing is, the disinformation and the stuff that Trump is doing. And by the way, the media apparatus an echo chamber that they've set up in social media that just keeps amplifying. You can't win this thing by 44,000 votes and then turn around and say, well, the DSCC didn't accomplish anything or, or that you guys had nothing to do with it. That's crazy. You couldn't pull one thing away from that fight. And if anything, how close it was should make it even more imperative for people to stop fighting each other and join together in a pro-democracy coalition that understands what this is really about. And in 2020, that wasn't what we were all doing. But now I think people are getting it or they need to get it. That's part of what I wanted to do in the piece was sound the alarm that this isn't two parties fighting each other. It's all of us. It's not about our past histories or even, you know, our past fights with each other. And we're all a good example of that, Lincoln Project and me personally. It's about coming together for one purpose and one purpose only, winning the 2022 election against an authoritarian movement and sustaining it through 2024. You know, then after that, look, I was ready to retire <laughs> a couple of years ago. I'm now Al Pacino. Every time I think I've gotten out, they pull me back in. 
and this one's too dire a threat for me to walk away from, even though, frankly, I'd rather be, you know, taking a little rest right now. I'm not going to do it. I can't do that. There is nothing I think any of us would rather do than spend the summer, you know, staring at a lake or going to a national park and, you know, tuning this stuff out for three or four months. But unfortunately, I don't think that's possible at the moment. You know, all credit where it's due. It was in talking with you guys on the phone here and there, Stuart Stevens, you know, who I, I was a fellow at the University of Chicago with him, one of the first fellows there at the IOP, and really have always had, even in the races that we did against each other, just a real respect for the guy, his character and decency and how smart he is. I started talking to him, and then, you know, Steve Schmidt really woke me up to just his historic view and understanding of authoritarian movements that we've seen in the past and the parallels of talking to him and you guys really woke me up. And that's what made me start to think, particularly if you go back and listen to the last four or five of that trippy show on my podcast, you could literally see after a conversation with Steve and you guys how I started to really try to start sounding the alarm about this authoritarian threat to the nation. I too think that part of the delusion out there, that there are people who can't see, just as they couldn't see Trump being elected in America, just as they couldn't see January 6th ever happening in the country, even after January 6th, still cannot see the threat that this authoritarian movement is holding over us right now. And so I really wanted to sound the alarm add my voice to that and literally create a ground up movement, pro-democracy movement, working with you guys to get a coalition together. Not everybody has to join the, the Lincoln Project, but I think that'd be great. But to somehow, each in their own way, join this pro-democracy coalition. And if I can somehow add to that here at the Lincoln Project, then that's my mission for the next cycle or two, both of them, hopefully. You know, we saw last summer that it took the horrific, very public death of George Floyd to spur millions to action. And I do believe that Trump's response to those demonstrations significantly hurt him with the types of voters that we go after, right? White, college-educated, suburban voters. They just could not and did not want to be part of that. But now, as you said, it's the summer. It feels normal because a lot of people are vaccinated. Things are generally open again but it's like a rip current. The surface may seem okay, but once you get in the water, it starts dragging you down the, the shore and you don't know what to do sometimes. So how do we get folks to say, look, this is not a normal time. These are not normal circumstances. They're not normal stakes. So we're going to have to go do things. Like how do we get people activated and off the couches? How do you use the digital expertise you have to get people to take an action on Facebook to like or forward to get them to ultimately take an analog action? to get out in the real world and do something. It's really possible, but you have to have a commitment to building that. Look, one of the things I say to people is you start up something like the Dean campaign, which is going against your party establishment. You got nobody with you. No one was driving up to Vermont for a guy they'd never heard of thinking that they were going to take the world by storm. What ends up happening is you're literally building the airplane strapping the wings on with rubber bands as the plane is rolling down the runway. And you pray that it doesn't come off. And of course, in the Dean campaign, after a while, they did. The wings did come off. But that's because 
we were building it on the fly. And I think to a large degree, that's part of what was happening in 2020. So now we've got this whole period here to build a bottom up movement of people where they're connected to each other, committed to both digital and analog, to doing things online and offline. The time to start building that is now. I would have hoped that forces in the party would have done it. But when we started the Dean campaign in 2004, I said then that all this technology, the internet, the videos, all that power that was suddenly in people's hands was taking it away from the parties. It wasn't a bunch of donors who could decide who the nominee was going to be anymore. That's how Obama beats Clinton in 2008. It's why Trump is able to grow a movement and is still growing an authoritarian one now. So what I'm saying is both parties didn't see that coming, no matter how many people like me said it's coming. Even after Trump, they didn't get that, guess what? Their infrastructure, the Breitbarts, the Newsmax, it's an infrastructure that just feeds from the bottom up with a top prepared to give it hate-filled fuel all the time. No one built that on the other side. It never happened. I'm not talking about a Democratic versus Republican other side. I'm talking about a bottom-up pro-democracy coalition and movement. So yeah, what we want to do is use the technology, use Twitter, use the social media channels, provide ways for people out there to engage and join the pro-democracy coalition. And then as we push messaging out, they're amplifying it. You know, we're in a world now where you have more influence on a family member, a friend, or a coworker than any elite at the top is ever going to have. I'm talking to the audience now. All we can do, and I think that's one of the things the Lincoln Project was like awesome at 2020, was giving them the content that they could pass on and amplify to those friends, their coworkers and family members in a way that got people's attention and made them think. And anybody who thinks that didn't help get the 44,000 votes that we need is just not dealing with reality. You built an army of amplifiers who took the content and moved it. We want to grow that massively going into 2022 to keep that message growing and to get others to join us. I mean, the one thing we did consistently back through the Dean campaign was we said each week, you know, on a show like this, look, there's one thing everybody listening can do today. It's find one more friend, coworker, or family member and get them to join this pro-democracy coalition. It's all we want. Just find one more person. Well, that's how we grew to be the big thing that scared the living daylights out of John Kerry and everybody else that year because it was they were building it. And that's what I think we need to do. There's a pro-democracy coalition that we're starting together, folks, and you need to own it. You can build this. And if they don't want to join here, there are other places, but it's a coalition. So let me ask you this. There was a story I've referenced a couple of times out of Kansas last week in which the Kansas legislature passed a bill subsequently vetoed by the Democratic governor and then overridden by the Republican legislature that basically said that it's a crime to, quote unquote, 
impersonate an elections official. Groups like the League of Women Voters in Kansas and other voter registration heavy groups, you know, have gone to court to sue to say this is unconstitutional. But in the meantime, they have shut down operations on voter registration, saying that they're afraid to get arrested. How do we convince people once in a while you got to get arrested? That's what's going to have to happen here. You know, as Steve Schmidt has said, I think other people have said this isn't the 1960s. This is the 1850s in terms of what we're up against. No one's asking anything other than to engage. And yeah, if it takes being arrested, then we've got to do it. The thing about Kansas, too, that concerns me is that the bad guys are really smart. They're very well resourced, they're dedicated, and there does not seem to be a lot of willingness to engage in the kind of civil disobedience necessary to demonstrate to a broader audience and the broader populace that these things are not right. And so they'll do it again. Remember, for almost every state, you know, with a few exceptions, there will be another legislative session before Election Day 2022. Like what we saw this year was the first round. They're going to get better by next January, February, March, and they will pass all sorts of stuff that will be urgency bills, as they called them in California, that will take effect as soon as a governor signs them. If we don't start throwing up roadblocks now, if we don't start communicating to voters, if we do not get those companies who, you know, for about a week and a half were really dedicated to democracy and now have disappeared off the face of the earth, and we'll get to them in a second, it's all going to be just a lot of, well, we did our best, but, you know, it's not really my problem. Yeah, I was talking to Mark Elias at the Democracy Docket, who's filing a lot of the lawsuits, and asked him about this. You know, how do we all help fight this? And he said, you know, look, if I've got to fight it in court after the fact, it's too late. You know, election day happens. There are going to be all kinds of suits out there about this happened. They said we were election officials. We weren't, you know, all that stuff is going to happen. And it's already left the point. you got to fight it now, and it's not in court. Court's the last place you want to be fighting this stuff. So let me turn real quick to these companies, and we're going to have more to say about corporate America this week. So in March, Coca-Cola, Delta, got a lot of pressure to take a stand against the Georgia voting laws. They didn't really say anything about it until after it had passed and Governor Brian Kemp had signed it. And then they really got activated, such as they would. Now we see that there are a lot of companies, Toyota in particular, who made pledges not to give money to those members who voted against certification, the Sedition Caucus. And we should note, as we're recording, it's the six-month mark since that day. Toyota is the biggest violator here because they're actually giving money directly to these people. But we see a lot of these big companies are giving through campaign committees, PACs here and there, that we all ultimately know where the money ends up. I mean, how is it, you know, from your perspective, that corporate America has not seen what Mitch McConnell has said, what Ted Cruz has said, what Marco Rubio has said, they don't end up in a better place with an authoritarian regime in power, either in Congress or in the White House. No, it's bad. I mean, there is an authoritarian regime anywhere that's been good for private enterprise or companies. It doesn't work that way. So two things, I think. One, it can't happen here. This is all like, you know, hand-wringing, alarmist is part of it. But the second piece of this, I think, is they've been so playing both sides for so long, you know, giving money to members and of this committee and uh, members on the other side of that committee to try to get enough votes to push their views through. 
that they still think that's what they're doing. They're trying to straddle both parties. And that's one of the reasons I, I wrote in the piece. It's not two parties. There are not two healthy parties in America. And so you're trying to straddle something and you're either with that authoritarian movement and funding it, or you're with everybody else who's against it in a pro-democracy coalition. It's either or. It's not play to both sides. And I think so you have all corporate America. The only thing they've ever known is playing to both sides. It's the same reason the media covers everything like, hey, the Democrats and Republicans, two sides going at it. It's not those two sides anymore. That's the problem. So you have the media coverage, corporate giving, including, like I said, a whole bunch of voters out there, citizens who believe that the best thing you can have is two parties trying to work together. They're not wrong in that belief. They're just wrong that it exists still with this party. Toyota needs to hear, no, uh-uh, it's not two sides. We're not going to let you straddle. There's a problem here. And we got to say it all loud and clear. But how do you convince Toyota's consumer? How do you convince their employees? How do you convince those members of the C-suite who are only worried about their bottom line, right? They're not the government affairs people. They're not the public affairs people. They're the PR and the marketing people and the guys who actually live on the business side of the company as opposed to the non-business side of the company, which all those people are making decisions are. How do you convince those people you got a moral choice to make? This is a moral choice that will have business repercussions. By saying that, by making that clear to them, and not just us, but individual people out there engaging. That's what I'm talking about, this pro-democracy coalition. It's the people here sending those messages in the content to their friends, neighbors, coworkers, and making sure that the local Toyota dealership gets them and sees them, that the headquarters gets them and sees them, and that the, actually that the headquarters in Japan learns about how dishonorable and disgraceful they're behaving. It's just hit all the pressure points, but it can't just be us doing that, it's much more powerful if a pro-democracy coalition is calling on these companies to stop. And by the way, we understand that you think you can play both sides. That's how you do it. There aren't two sides right now. There are the authoritarian movement that's being fueled by the lies and those that enable the big liar. And the authoritarian movement caucus is actually growing in office right now. They're purging the people of goodwill in the party and showing repeatedly how far they're willing to go. And at the same time, a whole lot of Americans, as Stuart Stevens likes to say, lack the imagination of how far this movement will go to take power. And so a company cannot be part of that. We have to make that clear. And like, look, right now, there's probably a whole lot of Americans that don't know Toyota did this. So we got to tell them. Our listeners, you know, they have to take that content, take that messaging, take the tools that they have, tell a friend, tell a coworker, tell a family member, get them engaged too, spread the word, make Toyota feel some pain, not just Democratic pain. That's my point. Republicans, Democrats, independents, people in the local community with the local dealership, make it really clear that it's going to hurt. So, you know, you mentioned one thing about, you know, the purging and all of that. So when, I think it was in February, when it was time to indict, I guess, or vote for Donald Trump's second impeachment, 10 Republicans voted. Last week, there was a vote on a select committee on the January 6th insurrection because 
Mitch McConnell, the Republicans in the Senate blocked it there. Only two Republicans voted for it. We're down to Kinzinger and Cheney. Cheney's been named to the commission. Do the other eight not understand like that the primaries are coming for them and that they're likely going to lose? Like they have nothing left to lose at this point. If you'd already crossed the Rubicon, why would you now try and pull up your pants and cross back again? Like I don't understand. It's cowardly is what's going on. I mean, I don't think it's just cowardice about losing their political careers. I think a lot of these have told other members that they are feared for their lives because this movement's gotten so violent. So that sort of crystallizes the problem here, though, because the election in 2022 isn't really about, okay, who's going to be Speaker of the House? You know, which party's going to have a five seat or six seat majority at the end of it? We're down to like, can we knock them out of enough seats and hold on and gain enough seats to make sure that democracy survives, that the American experiment survives to fight Steve Schmidt's 2024 view of the next presidential being just as urgent, which gets you to like, if you think people are going to be exhausted today and taking a rest, we aren't going to be able to rest till we get through those two elections, I don't think. I mean, I think that is the one thing also is that it's not just winning those seats. It's winning those seats by enough so that they can't get stolen. I mean, I really believe that, especially if they're in these reddish purple states. I have no confidence whatsoever that with all these pieces of legislation that have passed, that they won't try and figure out how to disqualify some votes. No, that's right. I think the other thing, though, is that, you know, I had Ezra Klein on that trippy show, you know, the podcast, and he, he was saying that there's not just the left-right problem or Dem versus Republican problem. There's the sense that people who are paying attention on both sides, you know, have become really polarized, obviously. And then there's a whole group of people who have chosen not to follow politics, disdain politics, because it's just two parties fighting each other. That benefits Trump and the authoritarian movement. Because if it's just two parties fighting each other over whether it was an insurrection or tourism on January 6th, it's just two parties going at it. If it's a partisan fight, they benefit from it's just two parties fighting each other. As people say, pox on both parties, I can't do this. That's the fight they want to have. This fight has to be, no, it's all of us versus an authoritarian movement that is trying to seek power and take democracy down. And that's why the truth matters, and we have to keep pushing the truth forward. But, you know, as I said in my piece, look, we're all Lincoln's guardians now of whether this experiment is going to survive or not. I'm very optimistic in knowing that I think people's hearts are there. They're willing to give it their all. I think they have been resting but I really do believe we can get millions and millions of people to come together and help us make that fight and win. All right. Well, let's bring it home. I want to get back to Trump and the big lies and all that. So Trump was in Sarasota, Florida this past Saturday. And as an interesting aside, Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida, a Trump protege and potentially one day a Trump opponent or competitor, begged him not to come in the wake of the Surfside collapse. Trump came anyway. DeSantis was not at the event, not mentioned at the event. And, you know, you can do all the criminology you want on that. But aside from the admitting to tax frauds side of things, he also had this to say about truth versus lies. Rob, can we play that clip? 
So all of a sudden, they said today, I heard, and there's a word, disinformation. It's called dis. If you say it enough and keep saying it, just keep saying it, they'll start to believe you. So we've heard this before. Now, he talked about alleged disinformation targeted at him and his allies, but we should really put it in perspective as he approached his business, too, you know, his presidency and his life in general. Here are a couple of things that were written in The Art of the Deal, which I know that he didn't write, but he certainly would have approved and certainly would agree with now. He says, quote, I play to people's fantasies. People want to believe that something is the biggest and the greatest and the most spectacular. I call it truthful hyperbole. And then in Think Big, he wrote, if you admit defeat, then you will be defeated. Well, that's almost Mussolini-esque. But it's impossible, Joe, not to point out that Trump's words in Sarasota come dangerously close to a guy named Joseph Goebbels, who said, quote, if you tell a lie big enough and keep repeating it, people will eventually come to believe it. Yeah, no, it's clear that's the school he went to. And it's the same MO, say the quiet part out loud, really loud, and keep saying it. That's all he's done for the entire time since he came down that escalator. And of course, he sees no irony in his projected attack. But, you know, I just even this morning I saw on Fox News a clip where the U.S. women's national team was playing, I believe, Mexico. And there's a 93-year-old World War II veteran who is playing the national anthem on his harmonica. And about half the team turns. And immediately the right-wing press went to say, they're turning their back on a veteran. No, they weren't turning their back on a veteran. They were turning towards the American flag with their hands over their hearts. And even on Fox News, they said, well, maybe they didn't turn you know, their back on this old man. But isn't it sad that we even have to think that they might? Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, you can't make it up. No, you can't. You can't. And I know all the people I've stopped talking to the last four years. You know, if you peel even one of them off, if each of us just peeled one person off, off as hard as that is, and the crazy conversations you have to have, but I do think we need to have those conversations where we can. I think that's absolutely right. And I think you're right. That is sometimes as bare knuckle brawling as we are. I think when it comes to individual conversations with people who might be willing to listen, if the first thing you tell them is you're an asshole and I hate you, probably not going to have a conversation like you want or you need after that. Right. Exactly. That's where I think there's a difference, too, between the people that have to stand for election in this 2020, um, 2022, uh, a need to, uh, to, to be someone that voters can see who will work across party lines, actually get some things done, even though both parties don't exist. They're going to have to project that and say it and mean it. The good news is I think there are plenty of good people out there who believe that and will be able to run like that. But it really does mean that someone else has to hold them to account. This pro-democracy coalition that's made up of people who do all these things and really have a broad pro-democracy coalition tent that is strong enough to defeat this thing and hold on to this great experiment for another generation. Well, amen to that. And um, Joe, I want to thank you for joining me today. I want to thank you for joining the pirate ship as we uh, head back into harm's way here this summer and, and as we get into next year. Before we go, where can folks find you on social media and where can they find your podcast, That Trippy Show? Find me at, at Joe Trippy 
on Twitter. That's probably the best place on social. And That Trippy Show is anywhere you get the Lincoln Project podcast, uh, Apple, Spotify. But anywhere you get yours, you can find That Trippy Show there. And also, hopefully, going to re- uh, return the invitation and, and have one of my good friends from the Lincoln Project on, uh, on this Friday's show. Well, absolutely. You know that we'll be there with proverbial bells on. As always, everybody, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen. Thank you all for listening today. I hope you've heard Joe. I hope you that you'll help get involved. Until then, we'll see you on the next episode. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For the Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.